Welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the value and abilities of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Tessa Charlesworth, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University, where she is studying how human beings think and feel about diverse social groups, in particular, how and why attitudes shift towards or away from prejudice. Welcome, Tessa. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. So let me just ask a little about your background. How did you get interested in the area of prejudice? Has it anything to do with how you grew up or things that you encountered? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in an all-woman family of social activists. Um, my mom is this female warrior, as I call her, um, from the time that I was three and my sister was five. She was really advocating for social justice and for equity, especially when it came to gender, but also more generally in the Canadian context when it came to race and Indigenous status as well. Um, so I was always sort of baking in this world where we were talking about around the dinner table, we were talking about social injustice, we were talking about the kinds of things that society should do to change and become more progressive, more equal. Um, and then when I got to college, I really started to realize that this wasn't just something that happened around my dinner table, but was a whole area of study. And that area of study is in social psychology. <laughs> so it was very exciting to see these kinds of, at the time, dinner table conversations start to take a much more quantitative and formal approach that felt like you could actually start to make traction towards some of the solutions that we were talking about around our dinner table. Um, and then really it was in that in that process of understanding social psychology and understanding how the tools of empirical social psychology could be used to better understand prejudice, better understand the solutions to prejudice, that I found my advisor, who is Mazarin Banaji here at Harvard. And she is incredible in many ways, another female warrior, for sure. Um, another person that I love to have good time conversations with around prejudice. Um, but she is unique in that her study of prejudice focuses not only on the kinds of biases that we might explicitly report, those that we're consciously aware of and can control, but also the kinds of biases that are more implicit or hidden. So these are our sort of automatic feelings or reactions um, that are less controllable and less conscious. And when I heard about her work, that just seemed so like so important to be studying, especially in this day and age when there's so much pressure to appear non-prejudiced, to appear equal. The fact that there's still this kind of undercurrent of automatic bias was something that was just extremely powerful to me and extremely true that needed to be studied and needed to be better understood. Can you give me a differentiation between an explicit bias and an implicit bias? Are there categories of implicit bias that people mm -hmm. have carry with them? Yeah, absolutely. So the way I distinguish the two would be to first talk about explicit bias. So explicit bias are the kinds of things that we see in like news reports, right? The general social survey reports that 83% of Americans don't like the political party from the opposite side of the aisle, right? Those are our explicit biases. We're reporting them, we're able to introspect on them, we're aware of them. They're typically assessed through simple surveys. So on a scale from one to seven, how much do you like Republicans? 
those kinds of things. And those can be, these kinds of biases can be about all different social groups. So about political orientation, but also about most relevant disability, ability, um, race, gender, sexual orientation, body weight, age, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in contrast to these kinds of explicit biases that are controlled and able to be measured through surveys, there are these implicit biases. And these are distinguished in the fact that we can't, we don't always know the kinds of implicit biases we might hold. For instance, most people in society report that they have relatively neutral, explicit attitudes between Black and white Americans. But most, most white Americans in the U.S. also hold an implicit association that is a really quick judgment between Black and bad and white and good. And those kinds of biases, again, can be towards all different social groups. Again, race, gender, sexual orientation, disability. The question is really where, where do those things come from? That's a big part of research. Where do our implicit biases come from? How can it be that we can develop these kinds of rapid automatic associations between different social groups, between you know, disabled and, and bad and abled and good, for instance? And that's a, there's a really complex answer to it, but the, the more simple um, boiled down answer seems to be that these biases are coming from our broad cultural environments, the kind of environments that we're baking in, so these are things like media representation, as well as just the proportion of a given group that we see on a daily basis. So if we see more gay people in our friend groups or in our local contexts, we have lower bias because we're more exposed to that group. We know more about them. Um, so media, immediate representation, as well as things like legislation, for instance. If we see a lot of legislation that's really pro-gay, for instance, so like the same-sex marriage legislation, then our implicit biases go down because we're being we're seeing in our culture this recognition of that outgroup as a group that deserves equity and a group that deserves protections. So in in brief, there's the, the broad distinction between explicit and implicit bias and how we measure it and how controlled it is and how aware we are. Um, but there's also some distinctions in sort of this very cultural component of implicit bias that gets into our mind, bias baking in these kinds of biased societies. So uh, let me give you an example. So I'm dyslexic, so people don't know I have a disability. But a while ago, I was having a hip issue before my hip surgery. And so when I used the MBTA trolley system here in Boston, I was using crutches to get on. And as soon as I got on, people would literally jump up <laughs> and say, do you want to sit down? And I would say no, because it actually was harder for me to sit down and then get up than for me to go to a part of the trolley where I could brace myself and just stand till I had to get off. And people have sort of been trained to uh, get up for a person with a disability, but they would always follow the question after I'd say no. And they would say, are you sure? And because it was so ubiquitous, I started to realize they didn't, for some reason, think I was capable of actually making a decision about whether I wanted to stand or sit. And underneath that was this perception of people with disabilities as being weak and in some ways feeble-minded. <laughs> now, one day I got on and uh, this woman came over to me and uh, got up and said, do you want to sit down? And I said, no. She said, 
what do you mean? And I said, well, I, you know, it's easier for me. She said, no, you're going to fall down if you don't sit down. And I said, no, I'm not going to fall down. She said, yes, you are. She was getting into an argument with me. I said, you know, I'm going to fall down if I keep talking to you and I'll get over. So it was so vehement about what she thought I should be doing that I started mm -hmm. to think, well, this is another example of this automatic unthinking response to a visual disability that many other people with visual disabilities have told me about. So now I was part of that community and experienced this. To me, it seemed to be from the other side, it was being polite or being socially correct. But from my side, it was, I know what I'm doing. Why do you think I don't? And it was the physical signs of disability with the crutches and all the yeah. images that they had seen in their whole lifetime on these telethons about these poor children on crutches, you know, being expressed instantaneously in a flash of a second. And that's why I think what you're talking about is so powerful because it, people don't even know they're doing it. You know, if I said, boy, you're really biased, they would not even know what I was talking about. That's exactly right. Yeah. So let, let me ask you about some of the research you've been doing. You are indicating that in the area of sexuality and race in the last 14 years, explicit bias has gone down dramatically, 64%. But in the same token, disability, explicit prejudice against people with disabilities has only gone down 3%. Is, is that right? Yeah, it's a slight distinction. So for explicit bias, like if you were to ask people, are you biased or are you prejudiced or whatever, those kinds of biases have actually gone down across the board. So certainly very dramatically for race and sexuality bias. Race bias, for instance, is actually now in our population that we're studying has reached neutrality. So it's dropped by 98%. But interestingly, when it comes to explicit bias, when it comes to these conscious or controlled revealed prejudices, Disability bias is also increased explicitly. So that one's dropped by 37%. Right. However, when it comes to the implicit bias, that's where we don't see any change. So the, the story that you mentioned of these kinds of, you know, people are standing up, they're being polite, they're maybe doing that more today than they would have a decade ago because their explicit biases or what they want to reveal are getting better. Even still, the underlying reason of why they're doing that has maintained, right? They're still making these associations between disability and weakness or disability and feeble-mindedness or disability and badness. And that has persisted. That hasn't changed at all over the past 15 years now. And in fact, the, the trend of that line is so stable. And when we forecast out based on how stable the trend has been in the past, it would take more than 200 years for those biases to ever touch neutrality. So a very, very long way for us to go yes. before we could see any improvement. One of the reasons for this podcast and inclusion at work is to try to cut down that timetable because yes. I don't think I'm going to make that timetable to see neutrality. <laughs> when you say neutrality, what does that mean? That would mean that we're in a place where people, when we ask them to associate really quickly concepts of disability, and bad or ability and good, that they're equally fast to associate disability with good as they are to associate ability with good. So neutrality is basically this world in which it doesn't matter which group you belong to, they're both equally seen as good or bad. So equally neutral in the way that we automatically feel about them. 
And excitingly, for, for some biases, we've actually already achieved that point. So amongst liberals in the United States, for instance, for implicit sexuality bias, we now see that there is no automatic association between being gay and straight and good or bad. Amongst liberals now, those kinds of immediate judgments in the minds are neutralized. So that's telling us that it's, it's possible to achieve. It's just very, very far away when it comes to disability bias. So what has accounted for this 37% drop in explicit bias in the last 14 years? It's, a, it's the million dollar question in some senses. So part of the reason we think is that all of these explicit biases are dropping pretty much in lockstep with one another. Some are changing faster than others, certainly so race bias is changing faster than disability bias on explicit measures. But the fact that they're all changing together is telling us that it's something in general in society. And that is most likely to be something like changes in the norms around expressing prejudice. So compared to 15 years ago, it's now even more incorrect, even more wrong to say that you explicitly like black people over white people, or you explicitly like abled people over disabled people. That is now become so taboo. And we think that that is accounting for most of the drop happening in disability attitudes, that it's really, we don't want to express these biases anymore. This unconsciousness is built in and baked into uh, the way buildings are constructed, the way doors are handled. Uh, You brought up in an interview about trees in Harvard Square and how it makes sidewalks very uneven. So uh, I won't name the bank, but at one of the major banks that is in Harvard Square, I noticed, and I have to admit to this that I hadn't noticed it for years, that they had no button outside to open the heavy glass doors. And uh, I know, for example, Arden Mischakowski, one of the co-founders of No Limits Media, has spinal muscular atrophy. and He doesn't have the arm strength to open that door. Uh, so I went in and walked a long way to this counter where these two gentlemen were sitting. And I said, you know, I have a friend uh, who has spinal muscular atrophy and I know he can't open those doors. Why isn't there a button out there? They said, well, that's not a problem. If we see somebody struggling with the door, we run down there and open the door for them. And I thought, what are you talking about? (laughs) You have to see somebody in a wheelchair struggling to get a door open. And then the other gentleman said, no, we have a button. I said, where do you have a button? He said, well, I have it over. It's on the door going out of the bank. And I did see that button, but then there was the outside door where there was no button. So this had reached a level of madness that I couldn't comprehend anymore. There was only one button, no button to get in and one button to get to the outside door. But then again, you were now trapped. I guess they see you struggling again and they run and open that door for you. And it didn't seem to them that what I was saying was weird. <laughs> like, why don't you just put two buttons on one side and two buttons the other? It's not a big expense. You might have have somebody come in and give you a lot of money, but they're just unconscious about it. And, and it's hard to confront that uh, level of unconscious bias, even giving them the facts or you know being somewhat agitated while I was describing the issue. So it seems to me that to truncate this 200 years, there really has to be a confrontation about the multiple ways 
physical, uh, emotional, uh, you know, interpersonal context that people have with people with disabilities, and also a real attempt to break down this thing called inspirational porn, which is constantly using children and adults who have disabilities to generate through the media these emotional stories where the able-bodied society feels good about doing something for them and that their life has been transformed. Yes, in terms of the, the confrontation piece, I think is so important. And we've seen how powerful a kind of reckoning, if you will, can be. So we've seen it, again, in the case of sexuality attitudes with the same-sex marriage movement, where there was this huge push, the societal push to really reconcile the fact that this group needs rights, right? We, we were, and we started to see all the different ways that sexuality bias has showed up, not just in, in marriage inequality, but in many others. We've also seen that in the case of Black Lives Matter, a huge reckoning just last summer in terms of, or what year two are we? Summers, two summers yeah. ago. Two <laughs> years oh my ago. Goodness. Yeah. A huge reckoning in, in this whole idea of systemic bias, the way that it shows up in our buildings, in our conversations, in our media, in, you know, exactly the kind of inspirational porn that happens, not just for disability, but also for race. Um, and there was that reckoning that happened. And we see the effect on our attitudes and we see the effect on changes in policies and so on. That type of reckoning happened certainly in, in an earlier stage, and unfortunately, we don't have data back into the 1960s, 1970s with, you know, the like massive disability rights movements that happened then. But it hasn't happened, at least in, in my lifetime since, you know, the early 1990s until now, we haven't seen the same kind of massive movement where we're addressing systemic disability bias. We haven't seen the same kinds of public conversations that raise this prejudice to the level of, for instance, racial prejudice. And yet, as you say, it's, it's showing up in all of these really subtle ways in the infrastructure of our environments, in the media of our environments, in the kinds of books that are published, the kinds of language that we use. The fact that so much of our language communicates these subtle ableist cues, um, you know, things like, I, I see what you're thinking, or I see what you're saying, are communicating interesting ideas, if you will, interesting in maybe air quotes, about what it means to be able to understand something. You have to see to be able to understand. You know, those kinds of subtle cues are things that you start to notice when you adopt this lens of a public systemic reckoning of how pervasive this implicit bias really is in society. and. We've seen it happen. We've seen it be effective elsewhere. And I think it's hopefully high time that the same kind of reckoning can happen for disability bias. So that, as you say, we can truncate that timeline from 200 years to 20 years or something. Yeah, unfortunately, the other big area is the world of work and uh, mm. advertisement. Uh, and since uh, uh, the... Black Lives Matter movement, there's certainly, just from my observation, been a surge in African-American portrayals and advertising, even on hosting game shows on television. Mm -hmm. But what I've noticed is that there's no representation of African-Americans with disabilities. In fact, the only, there's been a, a sort of a, a uptick in, a small uptick in ad advertisement that feature 
people with disabilities, but they're all white people, <laughs> ironically. Mm -hmm. And it appears that no black person has a disability, which is ironic since African-Americans have the 20% level of disability followed by indigenous people. So the, mm -hmm. the very efforts that are being made right now around diversity, equity, and inclusion are in, uh, in some ways excluding people within that group and then an attempt to address that form of prejudice, they're ignoring another form of prejudice, and they seem impervious to understanding that. <clears throat> and, and, you know, there's obviously been a surge in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion officers and hiring of, of people of color. Uh, but I noticed that there's several major universities we might be familiar with, that there hasn't been the same concern again around disability, uh, even among uh, the efforts within the universities to address it. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're not uh, addressing it, you feel good about yourself because you're doing this part of it and nobody's bringing it up. So you don't know about it. And so the other prejudice can rolls along and, and resources are not devoted to it. That's the other thing, financial. Uh, resources are not being devoted to finding candidates to fill administrative posts and academic posts at universities. And then you look around after five or six or seven years of diversity efforts, and you see nothing has changed, at least in that area. Yep, absolutely. There's actually, there's a psychological theory of this. <laughs> of course, we love giving names to, to phenomenon in the world, and it's called moral credentialing. And basically, the idea here is you feel really good about something moral that you've done. You give yourself the credential, the moral credential of hiring a Black candidate for a job. And as a result, you sort of tap out of thinking about diversity for the next couple of years. You're like, no, I did a good thing. I got my moral credential. I've got a degree in being a good human. Now I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I, you're exactly right. I think this is a huge consequence of so many of these social change efforts where we really forget the intersectional component of these biases. We forget the fact of disability intersecting with race, intersecting with social class and gender, for instance. So it seems to be that oftentimes there's this huge push for change that definitely helps lift one group towards equity but sometimes at the expense of pushing other groups down so they can climb up. And, and a lot of that happens through this process of, of moral credentialing of the people who hold the power. Yeah, that's very interesting. When I uh, was at Harvard, I worked for a gentleman named Gunnar Myrdal, which I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was a, a Swedish economist who was brought over in the early 40s to write a book called An American Dilemma, which was the first mm -hmm. examination of race prejudice in this country. And it was noted in the Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education as the social science basis for that verdict. Mm -hmm. And after uh, three volumes, <laughs> and of course it was that era, so to bring a white Swedish economist who ultimately won the Nobel Prize into uh, American society might seem strange now, but he did recruit some of the leading African-American scholars at the time, like Kenneth Clark and uh, Thurgood Marshall. And he came to this conclusion. It was a prediction that after the war, World War II, that, that what he called the American caste system, he was the first person to use that term, that racial prejudice would start to break down because the explicit values of American society derived from the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, really, 
would propel the contradiction between the way people behaved and the values they held. Because he said, you know, 90% of Americans hold those values and their behavior is completely different. So it would break down. So I think that, you know, is part of what you're picking up now in terms of the explicit bias, that the values of the society are compelling people after all these decades of agitation to say, no, of course, everybody's equal, everybody's good. Well, what we don't have is a methodology for attacking the uh, implicit biases and, and getting to people. You know, one of the things that strikes me repeatedly is that in political discussions, people with disabilities are not a political demographic. They never even mentioned, they mentioned mm-hmm. how women are voting or thinking about voting in African-American, Hispanic, gay people, no mention of people with disabilities. So they never mm-hmm. even polled. <clears throat> we never even hear their opinions about anything. And mm-hmm. they're also not an economic demographic that advertisers are specifically you know, and companies are going after. And they say, 56 million people, let's get their money. <laughs> but they don't think of them that way. So those are two sort of structural reasons that could be addressed fairly simply by just polling people with disabilities and asking what they think about an issue, but they're never even asked. Mm-hmm. And part of that comes from some of the ideas you mentioned earlier of this fear, if you will, of the frailty or the, the mental fragility of people with disabilities, these like inaccurate stereotypes that for some reason they're incapable, you know, because they're, because they might have physical cues that make them seem different from us, that becomes extrapolated into these completely wild and inaccurate stereotypes of what that means for their participation in society more generally. And a lot of that shows up in the fact that we, we stigmatize. And by stigmatize, I really do mean this social psychology idea of you stigmatize to other you stigmatize to push people away, to hide them, to keep them from public participation. And that really, se- as you say, that really seems to be the case that the, the sort of what implicit bias is doing now for people with disabilities is really stigmatizing and pushing away. So uh, where is your research headed and what are you trying to think about and help us think about? Mm-hmm. Yes, my research is headed in in many directions at this stage of my career. Um, Most importantly, I am trying to understand what we can do to change implicit bias, especially about those biases that have been so seemed so impossible to change. So things like disability, things like age bias as well, which is actually very tied up in our biases about disability and body weight bias as well has also remained very stable. So what are the kinds of structural interventions that a society can do to start to push the needle on these biases? And those kinds of studies, that kind of research is taking very much a kind of macro level approach and saying, are there, for instance, are there cities or are there countries or states that have done good legislation or good effort, media efforts to increase representation for people with disabilities? And do we see in those countries or in those cities or in those states, do we see that attitudes are also changing in response? And so this is really taking a almost a sociological or economist's approach, but coupled now with the, the psychology of how do we understand what's effective to shift these biases? You see interventions in uh, schools, 
I, I know there's a fury going on now at uh, school board level where parents think they're being excluded from decisions around uh, their children being whipped up by conservatives or, or extreme right wing uh, elements of the Republican Party. So even something as simple as dealing with being gay, as you know, in Florida, mm-hmm. and there's so there's definitely a, a reaction to George Floyd and the efforts of the last two years. And it's happening at the school level. And unfortunately, children are in the middle. Uh, and yeah. there's a significant number of children with disabilities, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I have to do that kind of research, too. I completely agree. Interestingly, that when we look at where the most effective interventions have been for implicit disability attitudes, most often they're at the school level. So, so things like, yeah. yeah, things like jigsaw classrooms, for instance, which is the idea where you give children an opportunity to meet and interact and become friends with, with kids who might have different physical abilities, different mental abilities, rather than putting them all into their own siloed class. When you actually do a true school integration, those schools have lower bias than schools that have this kind of segregated mindset. And so those kinds of interventions are really helpful. Other kinds of school interventions of like including disability studies into the curriculum, those have been really successful too in reducing children's biases, which is very exciting. It's also very scary for me to then see things like what's happening in Florida around sexuality bias or this whole backlash against critical race theory in education. Like we can't, the fact that we can no longer talk about racial justice, we can no longer talk about just being gay those kinds of backlash effects could also happen for the few successful interventions that have happened at the school level for disability. So if that happens and we can no longer teach disability studies suddenly, then we kind of start to lose hope in the the interventions that we're seeing as being some of the most effective at the school level and at the structural level. Yes. Well, that's unfortunately what's going on. You know, they just wield the term critical race theory like a hammer. Most people don't even know what they're talking about, but it's mm-hmm. sort of the scary tactics that are being used. I would suggest that one area for study is business, because there mm-hmm. are definitely efforts going on, even though they may not be as focused on disability. But one of the things that No Limits is very interested in is this thing that I call coupling, which I think I mentioned when we talked, is that the opportunity for a person with a disability and a person without a disability to interact on a profound, more profound level actually is a spur to creativity and innovation. Because as they learn that kind of partnership that is involved, you have to recognize both sides for their full humanity and see each other's strengths and weaknesses. And if the prejudice tends towards just weakness and suddenly you realize that, well, this person got to work and they had to have this uh, you know, plan to get here and they're really well organized. Well, because when you have a disability, if you're going to go to work, you really have to be organized. And also, well, they're actually pretty smart. And, oh, they see things in a different way. So when we talk about diversity in this company, this is exactly what we're talking about, giving Mm -hmm. all points of view. And they have a point of view that I never recognized. And that's really interesting. I I didn't know the trees and I I can't walk and the the buttons don't work. (laughs) You know, how about that? All that stuff. So Mm -hmm. suddenly our 
consciousness is expanded, your awareness is expanded, your ability to have insights into social interactions or our society or products or services suddenly expands and you start to see the value and abilities. That's why it's, I hammer it every time I introduce anybody because that's really what we need to do. We need to show mm -hmm. value here and we need yeah. to show abilities. And we somehow have to realize that what the, the movie Coda, which just won the uh, mm. Academy Award, you know, even at this late date, Marley Madeline had to threaten to leave the movie unless other deaf actors were brought in to play deaf characters, which seems astonishing, really. Uh, but the reality of most movies until very recently is that the lead actors were always able-bodied people playing uh, characters with disabilities so they would win an Academy Award, which they almost always do. Mm -hmm. always do. You know, it's like, all right, here's your statue. <laughs> John Penn, Dustin Hoffman, mm -hmm. Day Lewis, you know, all of them win. Mm -hmm. So that's all you have to do. Again, it goes back to the representation of people in the movies and, and mm -hmm. seeing real people who are deaf portraying these complex human beings uh, I haven't seen the film, but it's, you know, I've seen the reviews and the reactions. It, it is another level of interaction with an audience when they see these characters played by actual people with uh, disabilities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the, the point about sort of value and recognizing value, I think even, you know, we see there's, there's actually an amazing scientist who is at Columbia Business School. Um, Kathleen Phillips, and she had shown this quantitatively for, for racial diversity and for gender diversity, that if you have more diverse racial diversity in a team, they're more creative, they're more productive, they see greater value, um, they come up with better solutions, they're more likely to get good investments. Um, the same can be true about disability, absolutely. Because as you say, there are all of these unique perspectives that you gain by having a different way of being, having a different life history and navigating the world in a different way. Um, and I think absolutely like emphasizing that in the business case is very important as well. So if you had uh, like a wish list for the next five years, what would you like to see our society do? Mm. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> my papers. Yes, I would love people to read my papers, but actually more than that, I would love them to understand what we're actually saying. So if that means listening to the podcasts like this, where we actually talk about the work in a much more intuitive and user-friendly format, then that would be even better. Because I think really ultimately what I wish for is that the conversations around bias or the conversation around equity no longer exclude certain groups. That is, we no longer have to think about social justice at the expense of other groups. We don't just think about racial justice, but we forget about disability or we forget about trans identity. We really think about it in terms of this to lift one group up means that we have to lift all groups up. And we have to think about no longer just prioritizing one or two identities, but really saying, okay, if we're, if we're really pushing for equality, if we're really pushing for justice, that means that we have to recognize difference in all its forms. So if I could have a magic wand and wave my very wishes, it would yeah. be that. It would be to have a kind of collective conversation around all of these identities, 
rather than just one or two at the expense of others. That's great. And uh, I have to say finally about identity politics that the mm. right-wing Tucker Carlson types out there never even mention people with disabilities as part of this. So on, in an odd way, they've been sheltered from the fury right. of the right. But in another way, it's really bad that they're never mentioned again. So maybe we can yeah. uh, fix that and have new conversations. And, and hopefully these podcasts will stimulate uh, you know, a conversation among the people who listen to them or get on our website or our Facebook group around employment for people with disabilities. Anyways, I thank you for participating in the podcast and also for the great work you're doing because it, it is demonstrating in a very academic and a statistical way what many people in the disability community feel and have been able to articulate it with the precision and accuracy that you've done in your research. So thanks so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me.